Thank you for taking the time to view this message online. You can connect with us more through our comments section of this video, through our Facebook page, or through our website, nhgj.org. We're continuing this series of messages on what it means to be spiritually grown. Uh, we're looking at what it means to be a planting of the Lord, rooted deeply in Jesus, growing up in Him, being pruned as needed, so as to produce the fruit of the life of Jesus. And this really is the calling of every Christian, every follower of Jesus, to bear fruit in our lives. There isn't a thing called an ornamental Christian. Uh, there's not this person who just shows uh, the greenery but isn't supposed to produce fruit. Uh, somebody whose only job is to look good. It just doesn't exist. Our calling is to bear fruit, to put on display the work of Jesus that's happening inside, that it shows itself outwardly as the fruit of the Spirit so that people can discern or see, and we ourselves can discern or see what's happening uh, in the interior of our lives as we grow. So last week, I started with a message out of John chapter 13, and I pointed us to the Passover meal that Jesus was sharing with the disciples. And this is right before he was crucified. He rose from the table and began to go and wash the disciples' feet. Now, I made the comparison about how this was an opportunity to either take and embrace offenses that happened to us and to wound ourselves or others with these offenses, or to begin to shed them and drop away offenses, to release them. And the truth is, the only way that we can grow spiritually is if we're willing to drop offenses, that we're willing to release them and let them go, willing to forgive these things so that we can move on and grow deeper in Jesus. Now, it reminded me this last week as I was reflecting on that message about uh, one of my kids uh, at one point, uh, was about a year and a half old, and he was playing with a ball, a little plastic ball that he had in his hand, and decided that it would be really neat to put that ball in the subwoofer, just a small little speaker, stood about this tall, had a hole at the bottom that matched the size of the ball that he was playing with. So he pushed that ball into the subwoofer hole and watched it as it went in and then just dropped a little bit. Well, of course, the wheels were turning and I saw this happen and I thought, oh, I'm going to have to uh, tip the speaker up and, and dump the ball out. But before I got to that point, uh, he reached his hand in, which just fit perfectly into that hole, and reached over the ledge that was in the speaker itself and obviously felt the ball and took hold of it. Well, now we had a problem because when holding onto the ball, he couldn't back his hand out of that hole. And it took some time for me to convince him that he needed to let go of the ball to get his hand out. He wasn't making the connection of holding the ball with being able to get his hand. So he had to release it in order to get his hand out. Well, I know it's an odd uh, link to make, but I thought about that as it relates to offenses. When we're holding on to them, there's no, it's like a trap. There's no way we're going to, to get out. Uh, we need to release offenses. There's no way forward with Christ while holding on to offenses. 
we get stuck, we get held back. And so similar to my son who had to finally, yes, let go of the ball and could withdraw his hand. Likewise, you and I have to learn. It's learned to let go of these offenses so that we can move forward with Jesus. Well, today we're going to go back to John chapter 13, and we're going to hear again from Jesus as he's talking with the disciples uh, kind of in this next step. And, and in this important time, he's, you know, of course, so much of this is rich teaching that he's giving to the disciples before he's crucified. Um, he resets, and catch this, he resets the nature of their relationship in the family of God. And he does this not just once, but multiple times in John 13 through 17. And he also does it later on in John chapter 19. I'll get to that a little bit later on. Uh, but at this point, we're coming in at John chapter 13, verse 31. Uh, Judas has already uh, stepped up and away from the table, and he's left the room where they're having the Passover meal. He's setting in place the things to betray Jesus. And so that's already taken place, and now Jesus is about to address the remaining uh, disciples uh, about the nature of their relationship to one another. So let me pray, and uh, we'll just invite the Lord to direct our time together in the Scriptures. Lord, we thank you because we are at peace with you because of what you've done, Jesus. You've put our heart at rest. You've put our spirit. Uh, Lord, you've made us new in our being. You've, you've made us new in our spirit with you. And so we find ourselves very present with you, very much at rest with you, and awakened to what you want to speak and what you want to do. And so we ask you during this time, Holy Spirit, help us to see clearly the nature of our relationship to you, but also to fellow believers. So we thank you for your word. We bless it to our hearing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John 13, uh, 31 to 35, as I've said, uh, Judas has gotten up from the table, has left the room, and he's going to go set up this moment to betray Jesus. And so Jesus turns his attention to the other disciples. And this is where we pick up in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, this teaching that Jesus is presenting to the disciples is one that's very familiar. It's in multiple places in the Gospels, and it's also carried throughout uh, the New Testament teachings. 
um, loving one another. It's, it's a common idea that Jesus, again, in the early church taught. Um, it's one that's made its way onto a lot of wall decorations and bumper stickers and pillow embellishments. Love one another. Um, and at first thought, it really maybe moves us to this point of, yes, be nice to one another. Um, show compassion to one another. Help one another out. In fact, many of us who have been in the church for any length of time would even point to the working out of this ideal uh, type of love in Acts chapter 2. So we, we could make that connection scripturally with the love of Jesus that he's teaching them to love one another, and then what that looked like in the early church. Uh, Acts 2, 42 to 47, it really is a beautiful picture of the early church living and ministering together. Let me read it. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, this really is an incredible fulfillment of what we were reading earlier about in John 13, about Jesus instructing them, love one another. People will know you're my disciples if you love one another. You know, we fast forward to Acts and we see it being played out. They're loving one another. They're having things in common. They're breaking bread. They're basically sharing meals, just really sharing life together. And so they uh, not only had a witness in the community, they so witnessed to the people that it says people were added to their number daily. Uh, people were being saved left and right, really, just because of this love that was being uh, shown to them, this dis display of the love of Christ for one another. <clears throat> now, there, as we read a passage like Acts 2 that we just looked at, there's certainly cultural differences that need to be taken into account when we describe this idea of what does it look like when we love one another um, in, this, in this transformational way. Uh, they lived in a culture that was not really based around the individual, the self, or even just the nuclear family, the very small husband, wife, kids, family, isolated, um, uh, that, that focused a lot on individuality or individualism. Uh, individual rights. I mean, these are all things that we're accustomed to. Western culture, American culture, especially Western American culture, it's even emphasized even more, uh, just kind of this rugged individualism. This is part of our household. So there's obviously cultural differences. They were much more community focused. Their, their family spread multiple generations out where they functioned more in community with one another. Uh, so the connection to community was stronger just, just naturally. However, however, I don't want us to miss, I don't want to be dismissive of that and say it was just cultural differences. I want us to, to make sure that we capture a fundamental shift that happened in the early church because of what Jesus accomplished. 
that the disciples had moved from being centered around their family of origin, their mom, their dad, their siblings, even grandparents, to really being centered around the family of God. This wasn't just natural for them because of their culture. This was unique to what Jesus was demonstrating and calling them to in this kind of love that was to be family of God-centric, even a step above being their family of origin centered. So in other words, the significant growth that we see in the disciples and in the early church was from them relating as this early church in the book of Acts, it was born out of this place where God was their father and he was the center of the family. And this fundamentally changed their relationships, that they had fixed their eyes on God the father and the relationships that they had to one another became a central part of how they now viewed themselves in relationship to community. That instead of their family of origin, it was focused around the family of God. So a couple bullet points out of this, just so that maybe I can say it in different ways that helps us make this connection. Their connection to one another was more than religious affiliation, but familial identification. So it wasn't just because they shared common religious beliefs or ideas. It was because they now identified themselves through a familial connection and not just religious orientation. Likewise, when Jesus died and resurrected, the reconciliation that was experienced was not merely as a worshiper connected to a deity, but instead it was as a lost child being reconciled to a loving family uh, and a loving father. And, and so this was a shift again. Jesus' work wasn't just a reconciliation spiritually, it was a reconciliation relationally to God as father and to people who were discipling with Jesus to be connected to one another as family, fellow children, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this, this is significant. This is significant because some people would just say, well, it's really symbolic, right? I mean, this is what we're, we're supposed to feel connected uh, or reconciled in this way, but it's more figurative than substantive, right? We use terms like brother, brother John, uh, sister Karen, or uh, brother Tim, uh, but those terms are just, you know, kind of slap on the back, uh, friendly gestures. They're, we're not really supposed to connect with people out of a family basis, are we? I mean, that, that's just symbolic. Well, I'm going to bring up John chapter 19 and point to this because Jesus didn't think so. <laughs> Neither did the early disciples. When they viewed these relationships, they literally realigned themselves around God the Father and the family of God in their orientation to how they're connected to one another. At Jesus' most vulnerable point, when he is on the cross, literally on the cross, about to breathe his last breath, he gave these instructions to his mom, Mary, who was at the foot of the cross, and he was 
making essentially the final decisions that the firstborn son, whom he was, would make to make sure that his mother was taken care of. So he's on the cross and he's uh, uh, making decisions as to here he's going to die. How do I care for my mother? How do I care for this woman who I, as the firstborn son, am responsible for? And so from his family of origin, what was supposed to happen? Who was going to care for her? And so this is what he says from the cross, John 19, 25 to 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, this is an incredible response because based on the response of Jesus' mother and the disciple, it was clear what the instruction was from Jesus upon the cross, looking at his mother, behold your son, not pointing to himself, but again, the beloved disciple, pointing to the beloved disciple, behold your mother, and making this connection, and they followed up on it. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. It was, a clear, it was clear to them that a new family alignment was taking place. Remember, Jesus had other family members, including brothers. And in family of origin and natural progression, especially in that culture, it would have fallen to one of the other brothers to be the primary caregiver to his mother. But Jesus fundamentally changes the connection here when he points to the disciple and he says, she is yours to care for. And that disciple understood what that meant and then took her uh, into his own home. This is really significant as he became the caregiver to Mary. It points to the family of God, hear this, it points to the family of God as being a primary community and family by which the disciples early on align themselves to. This is an important reality for us. This is a challenging reality for us in the culture in which we live and maybe the ways that we were discipled into. I'm going to make a couple connections about what it means, but first, let me clarify a couple points of what this doesn't mean because it could be interpreted a few different ways. I want to be clear what I'm not saying about this, what it doesn't mean. So this doesn't mean that you don't care for your family of origin or that you're somehow not responsible for your, the care of your family of origin. Uh, Jesus was really clear about this and the early church teachings were clear about this as well. You absolutely, I absolutely have a responsibility, a moral, uh, spiritual responsibility, obligation to care for my family of origin in as much as I'm able to and in as much as they allow me to. Um, the family that you were born into, uh, you, sh you have a responsibility to care for your parents as much as you're able and siblings as much as you're able. Um, neglecting your own family to care for God's family is a bad witness. 
again, Scripture teaches this throughout the New Testament. Jesus pointed to this as well when religious leaders were allowing people to neglect parents so they could honor God. Jesus said, you set aside one command uh, for your rules, and he said it's not right. Uh, they should be caring for their parents. And, and so it's not an either or, it's a both and. You should care for your family of origin, your parents, your siblings, those you're able to, and you should be caring for the family of God. So it doesn't mean that you neglect your family of origin. Two, this doesn't mean that if you're a Christian, uh, the church people, the family of God, is now obligated to cover all of your living expenses, keep you employed, and help you have all um, uh, help you have all the meaningful relationships you want in life. Um, that's that's not how we interpret that. Is now the church is a catch-all for my needs. Uh, again, Scripture is clear. You should work with your own hands. You should use your gifts. You should do everything you can to contribute to the body of Christ and contribute to others. Uh, you should lean into your immediate family if they're available to you and seek help from your family of origin and those in your immediate household. Uh, and then if needs arise, absolutely uh, approach your Christian community with humility and grace, but not with demanding expectations and criticisms. Humility and grace, recognizing that yes, your, your family of God is there for you, and they're, they're there to support you and certainly not to walk away during times of hardship. We want to be present for one another, but we come with humility and grace and uh, instead of a demanding spirit. Now, thirdly, this doesn't mean that you can't ever leave the local church because they're your family. Uh, we don't want to get into any cultish practices uh, that you're somehow bound to the local church and you're you somehow have to renounce your faith in order to leave the local church. Uh, there actually is a history within the church of some of this weird stuff where uh, the church becomes very controlling over people, overbearing. And so, again, this doesn't mean just because you have a strong connection to the family of God doesn't mean that you can't ever leave a local church. Uh, there certainly are reasons that one might leave one fellowship and begin going to another one. So again, it doesn't mean we're cultish and controlling when we align with God's family. It does mean, however, in that context, that you should use a lot of apprehension and you should second guess and you should question and you should seek counsel. It should not be an automatic that leaving the local church is your response. That should also be a red flag and we'll get there in just a moment. Instead, though, you should also, we should also recognize there are reasons that for people to leave a local fellowship and connect with a, another body elsewhere. So I give you those three caveats, uh, those three um, clarifications, and so that I can make these final points about what does it mean in terms of our spiritual growth when we realign ourselves to God as Father and to the church as part of our family. Well, first I wanna suggest that because God is my father, I can expect that I need to change some of the attitudes, habits, and thinking that I have grown up with. This, this is something that should be an assumption for every follower of Jesus, 
that because God is now my father, I can expect that I need to change some of my attitudes, habits, and thinking that I have grown up with. So this starts with my family of origin and things that were passed down to me. There are attitudes, habits, ways of thinking, ways of functioning in my family of origin that don't match up with having God as my father and being part of his community, his family. And I, I need to uh, renounce or change, repent of some of those things, stop doing them, and go a different direction as I understand both through Scripture and through the Spirit's understanding of what it means to relate in healthy ways, in biblical ways, and ways of connecting to God as my Father. So I should expect this, that there are attitudes, habits, and thinking that I grew up with from my family of origin that need to be changed. I also receive some of these things from the community and culture that I grew up with. That means peers that influenced you and teaching that you received through over a period of years and in the environment in which you grew up, it needs to be reshaped. It needs to change. It means that for me, growing up as a Gen Xer, I grew up with peers and I grew up through influences that really shaped my thinking in negative ways and in unhealthy patterns. And generationally, I need to break out of some of those and reconnect with my Heavenly Father and scriptural, scripturally in other ways. That means if you grew up in the, the 40s or 50s, uh, if you grew up in the 60s or 70s, uh, you learned broken patterns from your generation. Uh, you inherited ways of thinking about the culture, the world in which you grew up with, that are not biblical ways. That means you were likely discipled in ways even. The church in ways, things that it was teaching, uh, was not perfectly clear. It was influenced itself generationally and in the culture that uh, the church was teaching at that time, that we're continually being made aware that God is our Father and He's introducing us to a new way of living. And so I know for myself, again, growing up and discipling in the church in the late 80s and early 90s, there were some unhealthy patterns and habits that I learned at that time. The church was very, very materialistic, very steeped in a consumer culture. It was always bigger, better, faster, stronger, big box churches, uh, the mega church model, uh, marketing from within the church of how we can get people into seats, really unhealthy ways of thinking about church in discipleship. It was more about growing big churches and bigger budgets to function within the culture around us. And it left some unhealthy patterns in my discipleship. Uh, earlier generations learned unhealthy patterns of connecting patriotism to their Christianity. And so now we're seeing some of that pay out in, in as it plays out over the years. Uh, unhealthy patterns of hyper-nationalism that uh, leads to unhealthy discipleship and shows itself as getting too easily diverted away. In modern times, you have generationally people disconnected in terms of relativism, and there are no absolutes. And so having to break from culture, break from the peers and, and the teachings that they learned from their culture, so this is true from every one of us. So again, I need to expect that I was discipled or influenced in ways that need to change. And I experienced that and 
And I can say unequivocally, you experience that. There's no exception. We've all been influenced by our, our um, family of origin and from the community and culture that we grew up in. So if I'm truly going to grow into the man of God that he calls me to be, if you're going to grow into the man or woman that he's calling you to be, then I have to be willing to shed those things that seem most comfortable and I have to take on this new understanding, take on this ability to grow continually and discern what it is that God wants to do in my life. I need to uh, put on that which is most fitting for the moment in which I'm in. Even if it feels uncomfortable at first, it's fitting for the moment, even though something else may feel more comfortable to me. So the, the second thing, and I'll finish with this, is that because the church is my family, I can expect that I will need to be a part of meaningful conversations that will cha challenge my style of relating to others. Let me say that again. Because the church is my family, I can expect that I will need to be a part of meaningful conversations that will challenge my style of relating to others. And so just as much as because God's my father and I need to understand that I need to be reparented in the kingdom, likewise, the church is my family. I need to understand that my style of relating is going to get pressed upon, that, that you're going to rub me the wrong way. And likewise, even through this message, I bet I said something that maybe rubbed you maybe a little bit the wrong way. But that happens more and more as we connect with one another is that I need to be a part of, and you need to be a part of meaningful conversations that help us and challenge us in how we relate with one another. So one thing I'll say about this, or first thing I'll say is being present with people is more valuable than I often realize. And what I mean by that, by being present with people, is that the, the, the tendency of the culture and the human tendency that we have is to run. We go all the way back to the garden when Adam failed God or when there was conflict in relationship, Adam's nature, the sin nature said, hide, <laughs> run and hide. Don't you know, get out of this uncomfortable spot. I, I think you and I recognize that is the natural tendency of every human, oftentimes the fight or flight. So if it's not hide, it's I'm going to be so aggressive, so uh, demonstrative, so uh, I'm going to push back so hard that I'm going to make it uncomfortable for us to be present with each other. So when I say being present with people is often more important than I realize, what I'm saying is one of the most important things you can do in your spiritual growth, but also in the spiritual growth of the community of the church, is to remain present. Is to not slam out the door walk away slamming the door and leaving the building, Figurative, figuratively speaking, maybe literally, but figuratively even. How many times have you and I seen relationships just fall apart because of the individual or individuals weren't willing to stay in the room and work it out? Weren't willing to stay in a season of discomfort to get through it two months later to work it out or six months later to work it out. The easy thing is to walk. And this is modeled in our culture over and over. It's a divorce culture. It's, it's a culture that uh, 
crinkle it up, throw it away. It's not worth saving. It's, it's very uh, temporary. God is calling you, hear this. God is calling you to stay in the room. God is calling you to that uncomfortable place of being present with people with whom you do not disagree and work through the discomfort. And even if you say, there's no way I'm gonna to get to the point of disagreement, the point isn't to get to the agreement, the point is to be present and to allow the Holy Spirit to work in you and in them through that process. How many times is it difficult for a husband and wife to stay in the same room? And while you may not come to agreement, be able to say, you know what? We're, we're not gonna separate over this. The relationship is worth too much for us. Jesus said, love one another. The world will know that you're my disciples by the quality of love. Do you know that, yes, there's times for people to leave the church. I'm, I'm, again, we go back to what I said before. There are, there are certainly times where that's appropriate. Far too many times, though, people walk out the door because they're, I was going to say lazy. <laughs> Let me just say because they're undisciplined in their walk with Christ to be able to allow hard places to change them just by staying in the seat and sticking through it until resolution can come. The body is, of Christ is far too fragmented from people who have found the exit door far too quickly than they should have. Staying is difficult. Staying takes work. Staying takes humility. Staying takes being willing to sit and listen and not always talk. So there's a lot that goes with this, but this is transformational in order for you and I to become grown up in Jesus. We want to become grown, mature disciples in Jesus. Let me tell you, one of the hardest lessons you and I have to learn and the body of Christ has to learn is to sit in this place of tension and being willing to work it out. Second one is just that loving Jesus involves attaching in loving ways to people that he cares deeply about. So there's no way that we get out of this unscathed. And maybe this ties to the point I was just making. That's oftentimes the reason we go is because we think, why? I'm going to get hurt again. Why? Because uh, I, I'm not invested enough in these people that it's worth it to me to get hurt. And that fundamentally is the issue is that unless you love people enough to stay in the room with them, it's gonna be easy to walk every time. Listen, I'm here at this church because I love people. <laughs> and I'm committed to sitting in a room with people who I even disagree with because I care about people. And loving Jesus means I love people whom I know at some point will very likely hurt me in ways and being vulnerable to people who have access to me in ways that can hurt me and make me feel things I don't like to feel. Listen, this is what Jesus does. He calls us to the point of vulnerability so we can love in ways that the world has never experienced. But if you and I, as followers of Jesus, are going to love people in meaningful and deep and transformational ways, that means we have to be vulnerable at ways that most people aren't willing to go to. And so oftentimes the church has tried to escape with this veneer of love 
that when it gets pressed on and we face uh, being hurt, again, we back out of it. We back away from it and we avoid those people or those moments. Love one another. And by the way in which you love one another, they're going to know that you're his disciples. There's just not a way that you get out of relationship unscathed, meaningful relationship. So I go back to this. Because the church is my family, because it's your family, I can expect that I'll need to be a part of meaningful conversations that will challenge my style, that will challenge your style of relating to others. This, this in a sense, is a greenhouse for relationships, the church. That's what it should be. Oftentimes we want beautiful plants that sit out on the patio right from the beginning, but it's a greenhouse where it's cultivating relationship and it's difficult and we say the wrong things or do the wrong things and feelings get hurt. Stay. Don't run. Stay. Work through it. Allow yourself to be changed, to be transformed. Allow yourself the time that it takes to be fundamentally changed and transformed through a family that is not your family of origin, but is family that is moving towards Scripture as its basis and spirit for its heart of the way that it interacts with one another. So I'll finish with this. I've used uh, this quote from C.S. Lewis multiple times because I think it speaks so deeply to the need that we have within the body of Christ to be vulnerable. It's from his book, The Four Loves. Lewis writes this, he says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you wanna make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. There's really no way that you or I function in loving union with God and with one another as the family of God without being vulnerable. So I want to tell you, I'm, I'm calling myself to this. I'm calling each of us as part of the New Horizons church family that if we're going to become this community of followers of Jesus who are getting our roots deep into the life of Jesus and uh, becoming an orchard of disciples, each growing at their own pace, but out of our lives, this life-producing fruit that's going to nourish one another and nourish the community that we're a part of, we need to, at the very heart of this moment and, and at the heart of this vision, we need to realign ourselves. We are not mutually connected through a religious alignment to a deity. We are fundamentally aligned as family with Father God at the head 
and one another focused around him and mutually relating as the family of God. We are not a collective of individuals who are at just a common point uh, of redemption. We are people who are at various points gathered around the cross. And because of what Jesus did, he points to you and he points to, to the person seated next to you. And he points to me and he says, brother, here's your sister. Sister, your brother. Love one another. Your family. You're not a collective of individuals. You have one father, one God. You have one Redeemer, one Christ. You have one Spirit who is in you and unites each of you. Now love one another as he has loved each of us. Lord, it's more than we can do on our own, so we ask you, empower us for it. We know you will. If you call us to it, you empower us for it. Lord, help us to change our thinking about how we relate to you and to one another. You are our Father. We are your sons and daughters. We thank you for bringing us into your family through the cross of Christ, redeeming us. When we were orphans, now we belong. We belong to you and we belong to your family. And so, Father, we belong to one another more than just individuals who are choosing to follow a religious set of beliefs. We are brothers and sisters with you at the center of the family. And so help us to deeply care about one another, to be willing to be vulnerable. Give us the ability, oh God, give us the ability to stay when we want to run. Help us not head for the doors at times when we need to sit and stay in relationship. Give us humility and grace for one another so that in this love, it can be transformational for us individually, collectively as a church, and it can be transformational to the community that we're a part of as they see us love as you have loved us. We thank you for it. In the magnificent, all-powerful, all-glorious name of Jesus Christ, amen. You can find more resources for this service at nhgj.org. Email us your prayer requests to prayer at nh4gj.org. If you are a new follower of Jesus, we have a free resource for you called Following Jesus. To receive a copy, send a request to info at nh4gj.org. If you would like to partner with our ministry through giving, you can do that online at nhgj.org giving or by mail to 641 Horizon Drive, Grand Junction, Colorado, 81506. Thank you for being with us and may the Lord bless you.